the state of our union is strong because our people are strong. I think it was a good night for Donald Trump, but remember, voters always grade this man on the curve. I call upon all of us to set aside our differences. There, there's a reasonable argument that we're already in the middle of a constitutional crisis, and it's a rolling Saturday night massacre is what we're seeing. He said he was going to unify folks. Uh, it was just the opposite. We have gone forward with a clear vision and a righteous mission to make America great again for all Americans. This is Freak Out and Carry On. I'm Ron Suskind. And I'm Heather Cox Richardson. So Tuesday night, President Trump delivers his first State of the Union address. And boy, it was a doozy. A lot of ground covered. One hour and 20 minutes, if you could sit through the whole thing. And and in it was all sorts of dodges, fakes, expressions, arias. He proposes an infrastructure plan that's dramatic. $1.5 trillion dollars for the new infrastructure investment. Uh, May or may not ever become a reality. There are ideas on immigration. The deadly loopholes that have allowed MS-13 and other criminal gangs to break into our country. Everything from that to to paid parental leave. And God knows a lot of bragging about the economy. Since the election, we have created 2.4 million new jobs. You know, it's so interesting watching that Speech, I said, we're seeing a new reality show character. Trump has many forms, many shades to the character named Donald Trump. This was a new one. It was uh, one who tried to, I, I guess, inhabit the thing he said during the campaign of at some point, I will be so presidential. I mean, you won't believe it. Well, he kind of was. And I think that's what happens in State of the Unions. I think we generally forget what presidents say, but it's a moment where they get to look more presidential than almost any other time, other than raising their hand for the oath of office, even more presidential than that. And in a way, for people who are worried about the rolling constitutional crisis that is Donald Trump, some of them are even more terrified today, saying, hey, he can do that too, and make people feel, what's the big problem? He gave me what I wanted. I've got my big tax cut. And Well, he seemed kind of presidential, so I'm now allowed to cheer. You should be cheering, too. It's about the deliverables, and and, uh, so join hands now. That's what I saw when I watched it. Terrified the hell out of me. Really? Yeah. You know, I didn't—I was not— moved by this at all. You know, Donald Trump is a great speaker. When he is off script, he is a great speaker. He puts together his sentences incredibly powerfully. You can get behind him even if you disagree with what he's saying. You put him on a teleprompter, he's boring, he's low energy, he goes on far too long. And what I heard in this speech, first of all, was the fact that Everybody was going to be asleep before the end of it because he wouldn't stop. He went on for about 300 years. Can I ask you one question? Did anyone else use low energy in any of the punditocracy other than you? Somebody must have. Well, I don't know. I, mean, I, I haven't read seen everybody, it. But, you know, it's not it's really not nice. When, it's not Trump when the He when takes he, when Jeb the down on low smoke. energy and he's doing low energy. But, but it was a really typical speech in the sense that whenever you get a president who's on the ropes in terms of the number of people who elected him and how popular he is, he always says that he has invented prosperity. And the whole country is booming thanks to him. Then he pivoted to the usual, which is that immigrants are destroying everything. So, you know, he kind of nodded to his base. You know, David Duke said, yeah, this is great stuff. The only thing that I saw in it that was new and really scary was when he called for Congress to give cabinet secretaries the power to reward 
uh, good workers and to get rid of any federal employee that he thought was failing the American people. So tonight I call on Congress to empower every cabinet secretary with the authority to reward good workers and to remove federal employees who undermine the public trust or fail the American people which takes us right back to the old days of patronage, the, the patronage where you got a job basically because you supported one politician or another. Uh, the only thing that I thought was really, really interesting was Melania's white pantsuit. And it'll be sort of interesting to hear what our guest has well, to say about that. Well, we are going to get back to these fashion choices because I think you're right. They're huge, absolutely huge. So let, let us... You did that in Trump's voice, by the way. <laughs> I don't know. Something happens to me at a moment like this. Um, it's very confusing. You like that suit, huh? <laughs> <laughs> I think this suit was meant to affront the orange it man. It is indeed intended and to affront I him. do want to talk about that. But first, let us bring aboard our guest this week, Olivier Knox. He is the chief Washington correspondent for Yahoo News. He is a fine reporter and a funny guy. Uh, Olivier, welcome back. Way to set the uh, expectations a little higher. Okay, there. okay. You know, he's very funny for a journalist. So, Olivia, I just want you to do a little bit of the riff that I just heard you do during the sound check when people ask in, in the world of production, what did you have for lunch today? And uh-huh. you said, go ahead. Well, I said what I would have liked to have for lunch was a couple of Maker's Mark Manhattans <laughs> just to take the edge off of today. <laughs> um, I'm also, I've, I've been known to, I was asked once by... Mm, I want to say maybe Lindsey Graham, what my favorite drink is. And I re- my response was the third one. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice material. Well delivered. Okay, o- Olivier, big takeaways uh, from you, brother, about Tuesday's speech. Along with the once those makers marks seeped in, what, what did you see? What did you feel? Um, I saw sort of the opening salvo of the year long campaign leading up to the midterm elections in November. You know, he's going to be promote. He's going to be talking about the economy, which has continued to grow on his watch after after growing for most of Barack Obama's watch. But the, the economy, the, the Republicans are, I think, doing a better job of making their case than Democrats are right now about about the economy. And I think that's a that's a potential problem for Democrats going into November. I did something that I do after every big speech, and it's not at all scientific. OK, let me disclose that right at the top. It's purely anecdotal. I go to look at about 40 pages on Facebook of friends of mine who don't live in D.C., don't live in New York, and are only remotely connected to politics. And the really striking thing about their reactions was that across the spectrum, they liked the speech, but they didn't say anything about any of the policies that the president invoked. Instead, they focused entirely on the guests who were in Melania Trump's visitor's box overlooking the chamber. The so-called Skutniks. Right. So in 1982, Ronald Reagan completely transforms the State of the Union. He invites Lenny Skutnik, who dove into the icy Potomac a couple of weeks earlier to pull people out of the wreckage of an airplane that had crashed into one of the bridges here in D.C. He invites Lenny Skutnik, puts him in a place of honor and refers to him as sort of an exemplar of American heroism. Just just two weeks ago, in the midst of a terrible tragedy on the Potomac, we saw again the spirit of American heroism at its finest. The heroism of dedicated rescue workers saving crash victims from icy waters. And we saw the heroism of one of our young government employees, Lenny Scutney, who, when he saw a woman lose her grip on the helicopter line, dived into the water and dragged her to safety. 
and it forever transformed the State of the Union because it was such an effective rhetorical and visual device. And so in D.C., we call the guests there the Skutniks. And everybody that I looked at said, what a great speech. Wow, that North Korean defector. Today, he lives in Seoul, where he rescues other defectors and broadcasts into North Korea what the regime fears most, the truth. Today, he has a new leg. But Sung-ho, I understand you still keep those old crutches as a reminder of how far you've come. Your great sacrifice is an inspiration to us all. Please, thank you. It wasn't so much a response on the level of, you know, he called for ending, for only giving foreign aid to America's friends. Wow. Now, again, this is superficial. It's just 40 of my Facebook friends. They do run the political gamut, though. And what it told me, it reinforced something that I thought, too, during the speech, which is that, you know, he's a really good casting agent of talent. And he found some really, really compelling stories uh, that he could that he could sprinkle throughout his speech. I mean, you talked about how people don't remember anything from from State of the Union speeches. I I've covered a whole bunch of these and I'm definitely in that category. I remember like four. Um, and I don't know, I think this is going to be remembered at least as much for the North Korean defector holding his crutches aloft and smiling as it is for anything that the president said. I mean, I agree with you. He took it to a new level. He added more guests. The diversity was quite dramatic and I thought ingenious. Uh, and they all played their roles brilliantly, every damn one of them. And, and I, I think that that will be the thing people remember. You know, we talk policy. You know, we're looking for those key policy points. Most Americans are not. They say, boy, that guy held up the crutch. I, I get it. What on earth are the Democrats supposed to do at this? Boycott it? Yell like we've seen before? Sit on their hands? Or mount uh, a new kind of response, which they tried to do last night as well? I think it's it's largely safe to ignore the State of the Union if, the op- if you're the opposition party. If you look at the polling data for the last two uh, decades or so, it doesn't move the needle on presidential job approval. Um, now, the fact that the president has managed to stay off Twitter is going to help him a little bit. If uh, The thing that struck me a little bit about the Democratic response, um, there were a couple of strange moments when the president falsely claimed that um, so-called chain migration lets people bring in any, an unlimited number of distant relatives. Under the current broken system, a single immigrant can bring in virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives. Under our plan, we focus on the immediate family. That's, that's just not true, for starters. But some of the Democrats started to boo and hiss, and Nancy Pelosi sort of sat up straight in her chair and put out her hands as though to say, chill. And it was, I don't know if that was on C-SPAN, but it certainly was very, very visible in the chamber. I think, I think the fight now is going to be entirely over, over the economy. And I think that the Democrats, I mean, immigration is very important, and I would argue it's tied to the economy. But the fight over the economy is going to be really, really important. And Democrats need a better message than the one that they have now, which is telling people who are getting $500,000, dollars that this is, that this is crumbs. Um, so. The more traditional Democratic message, which I think we're going to start hearing pretty soon, is your boss got a million dollar raise, you got a thousand dollar raise, and they're coming for your Social Security, or they're coming for your Medicare, or they're coming for your Medicaid, or they're coming for your roads, or something else. 
But so far, they, they haven't done a really great job. And that is going to be the central, I mean, this is, I'm not exactly breaking news. The economy is going to be the central political issue of 2018, again, barring some massive external crisis. He took credit for the economy, even things he had nothing to do with, which presidents tend to do, but he did it fairly effectively. And the tax cut is in people's hands. People are going to say, I've got this money. A thousand bucks is a lot to me, may not be a lot to you. Look, the fact is he has raided the treasury of $1.5 trillion and he's going to get a yield electorally for that investment. The Democrats have to come up with something because it'll mean that what could be a bumper crop in this midterms may be something less unless they've got a counterpoint. I don't know. I thought he way overplayed the effect he'd had on the economy. No one picks that up, though. Oh, but you know what? The economy comes down to is how do individuals feel, and people are hurting on health care. They're hurting on their on bills in general. Um, the, the thing is, so, there is there's okay. a distinction, but there's a distinction between how is the economy doing and to whom do you give the credit. And you, what you get right now is actually really high marks across the board for how is the economy doing. And it's much more divided on who gets the credit. And so the fight's over that, the latter part. So, Olivia, you know, you said that the the story of this year is going to be the economy. And, of course, that always seems to be the way presidential elections go. But there is an elephant in the room, and that's Russia. You know, people talked before the State of the Union about how Richard Nixon's 1974 State of the Union had that very famous line. I believe the time has come to bring that investigation and the other investigations of this matter to an end. One year of Watergate is enough. We expected to hear something similar this time around in this State of the Union, and there was nothing about Russia at all except a glancing blow at it. Was that surprising to you? That Nixon, uh, that Nixon State of the Union was 1974. My favorite, yeah. my favorite Nixon uh, State of the Union, though, is 1970, and it's my favorite because... They got off to a slow start, and though in order to finish it, the White House doctor prescribed amphetamines known as greenies to the chief speechwriter, who basically uh, hammered out the speech over a sleepless three-day binge, um, <laughs> which is one of my favorite little nuggets of Canadian history. Uh, that sounds like my book writing process. Keep going. Right. Well, these days it's more. <laughs> these days it's more. You know, heroic intake of caffeine. But you know, those those were the days. Well, you know, I'm um, I'm skimming this that that speech right now because I have another speech in front of me, and I have to say it's very short sentences, and they seem to come with rapid fire. <laughs> a staccato beat. That would, that's right. That's right. And they keep scratching themselves. Yeah. It. Um, <laughs> it I think, I mean, I wasn't that surprised that he didn't mention it. He did. He mentioned China and Russia only in one short passage where he talked about sort of ri American rivals on the world scene. You know what I was stunned that he didn't mention? Actually, I heard not even a nod to the pro-life movement in that speech. That's and good catch, that, yeah. That surprised me a lot because for all the talk of unifying, yeah, sure. This was not an effort to unify anything, and he doesn't need to unify anyone. What he's trying to do is try to kind of put together the coalition that, that got him through November of 2016. But that surprised me because, you know, the big argument that they're making now is, yes, yes, stylistically, he's Donald Trump. But on a policy level, he's just like other Republican presidents. You know, this, this tax thing is orthodox Republican economics. Building up the military is orthodox Republican national security, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I was surprised that he didn't give that out. And you know he's crazy at heart, but when needed, he can sound like a president in front of a joint session of Congress. Hey, we're going to take a break. We'll be right back with Olivier and Heather. Stand by. 
Okay, we're back. Heather, Olivier, State of the Unions are usually pretty dry affairs. And we, as we said, we can't remember almost anything from any of these speeches years later. And for good reason, they seem to mean very little. Sometimes policies are laid out and they end up being sort of a, a prescient glimpse into what happens historically. There are exceptions, though. And, you know, I certainly reported on one. When you have a moment like George W. Bush with the country angling toward war in Iraq says those extraordinary 16 words. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. That turns out to be false. This is at the core of what turns out to be a hollow case for war. Those are some of the most important words this man, well, arguably the most important words that George W. Bush speaks in his eight years as president. Olivia Trump, as usual, has some big lies in the State of the Union, maybe not that big as a case for war, but he claimed that his was the biggest tax cut in history. That's false. Uh, he said because of chain migration, as you said, a single immigrant can bring virtually unlimited numbers of distant relatives into the country falls. You know, this president is known for creating his own reality on TV, in the White House, in tweets at 3.22 a.m. Does he just get away with that at this point? And were you surprised that he didn't have any of those tweet-like moments of, oh my, Trump unhinged. He knows that works for his base. That's kind of what they're looking for. And that's kind of why they watch. Are you a little bit surprised he didn't do that, which has been essentially the practice of such success for him? I was not that surprised because they knew what the stakes were for this thing. They knew that they needed to have this quote unquote presidential moment. Now, again, if passes prologue, he's going to tweet something within the next couple of days. It was just five days ago or so that he, he was accusing Democrats of being complicit in any murders committed by undocumented immigrants. The list of derogatory nicknames that he's attached to Democrats is long, you know, crying Chuck and uh, Dickie Durbin and all those people. He's not th this unity thing. This isn't going to last. We, we have a, a, about a week, maybe a little bit more than a week before the government shuts down again. The acrimonious debates are all going to resume. So I guess I wasn't that surprised that he didn't have a more wild ad lib in the speech, but I don't know how much it matters. And right now he's probably itching to get his finger on the, on the Twitter trigger. Yeah, but let's look at this. A State of the Union address traditionally is the moment when the president literally tells members of Congress, technically, what the country looks like in a snapshot picture. And actually until 1934, it was called the message to Congress. It was not called the State of the Union until FDR called it that. And it was great because the cabinet secretaries actually wrote their own sections. And they said, this is how much money we mm. spent. This is who we talked to in the State Department. And so if you actually want to know what the world looked like in a certain snapshot year... You can go to the States of the Union and it will tell you exactly what America is doing at those times. But Ron and I were talking and talking about how the State of the Union really has become almost a set piece where you only remember something extraordinary that happens. Um, I'm not sure there's anything to grab hold of in this particular speech. And I wonder if you look back, Olivier, at the speeches that you have watched. What are the ones that jump out at you that you think actually made a difference in the way history unfolded? Well... The uranium, for sure. The the um, the axis of evil that was really axis important. Axis of evil, was, yeah. yeah. States like these and their terrorist allies constitute an axis of evil 
arming to threaten the peace of the world by seeking weapons of mass destruction. These regimes pose a grave and growing danger. That was, tw that was 2002, and you know, we were hurtling towards, towards war, and you know, that was a pretty loud signal of policy. Didn't amount to as much as he, as he thought it would, but the era of big government is over for Clinton. We know big government does not have all the answers. We know there's not a program for every problem. We know and we have worked to give the American people a smaller, less bureaucratic government in Washington. And we have to give the American people one that lives within its means. The era of big government is over. But, but we cannot go back to the time when our citizens were left to fend for themselves. Uh, honestly, I mean, this one, this one is going to be 100% the North Korean defector for me. You know, we may possibly remember for a little while the Americans are dreamers too. Um, yeah, that, was, that whole exchange was was many layered and a little unsettling, frankly. That was the uh, that was the all lives matter uh, moment for his speech, right? Where you know you repurpose repurpose the the uh, the rhetoric of of Democrats and liberals for your own purposes. That, but I don't think anyone's going to remember that in, you know, yeah, I agree. It's got, it's got three or four twists inside of it. Uh, you know, essentially bringing DACA into the killing of children by immigrants. I mean, it flipped, remember a big, a big part flipped, of the Republican message yeah, flipped is, three that, ways. Is, that, is that Democrats are picking undocumented immigrants over us citizens. Yep, no, that's, no that's a top, that's one of their top messages. But, but I think the, the takeaway, certainly what I felt watching it was that, that uh, everyone seems tiny next to this man at this point, even consequential actors on the political stage. And um, uh, Trump uh, owns the narrative. You know, in some ways, this midterm election is his to, to lose big or maybe lose less big. Uh, the decisions are in his hands. You know, he literally has every eye on him, every tongue, every moment of attentiveness is focused on Trump. This is another night in which this happens. This is the way this happens for presidents. This is their night. But interestingly, this is every day for this man. Every eye in the world is on him almost every damn day of the week. This is just another but, day, a day where he gets to that, be presidential. You treat that like an asset. It's not. He's, uh, he's too undisciplined. Look, one of the things I heard, I hear still from foreign diplomats who represent major, very close American allies, their main complaint is nobody in this administration speaks regularly, reliably with any authority for this president, including this president. It's not necessarily an asset. You know, the, the reason he's had a reasonably good week is that he stayed off Twitter and let the pageantry and the, the sort of president-centric nature of the State of the Union do part of that job for him. I... As I said, he does, I don't think he stays disciplined. There's no evidence in the last three years for the ridiculous assertion that this is a pivot moment. This is now he's president. Now he's reset his presidency, et cetera. There's just no evidence for it. Olivier, great to have you on the show. Thanks so much. 
Okay, Heather, before we go, let's get right back to that white pantsuit. Speak to me. You have to remember that Melania is a fashion professional. She knows what clothes mean, and she did not wear that pantsuit by accident. Then you have to remember that the person famous for wearing a white pantsuit was Hillary Clinton, who wore it in honor of the suffragists and in honor of female empowerment. Then you have to remember that there has appeared to have been an estrangement or a further estrangement between Melania and President Trump over the allegations that Trump paid $130,000 to quiet rumors of an affair with a porn star. There's other rumors swirling. For her to come to that State of the Union and sit there in that white pantsuit with a stony face watching her husband deliver that address in a suit that was reminiscent of everything that he opposes was not an accident. And one of the first things I saw afterward was somebody saying, welcome to the resistance, Melania. Look, you've convinced me. I I need to hear more from fashion professionals. Heather, great insights in fashion. Is this a thing for you? You can tell by the way I dress, Ron. Trenchant insights from our fashion correspondent, Heather Cox Richardson. Heather, thank you. It is always a pleasure, Ron. I'm Ron Suskind. This is Freak Out and Carry On. See you next time. If you haven't already, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. It helps others find the show. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at Freak Out Carry On. Visit our website at wbur.org slash freakout. Our email address is freakout and carry on at wbur.org. Our show is produced by WBUR in Boston. We're produced and edited by Catherine Brewer. Our technical director is Matt Reed. Our executive producer is Iris Adler. Music for the podcast, courtesy of APM. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the participants and do not in any way reflect the views of WBUR management or its employees.